This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the Quintuple Platinum, second album from Alice in Chains' 1992's Dirt. Uh, but it wasn't Quintuple Platinum at first. Uh, no. It was, uh, it, it, according to Wikipedia, it peaked at number six on the Billboard chart when it was released, which is still... I mean, that's still pretty good, especially back in the 90s when record sales were pretty high. But still, you, you'd you think, looking back, you kind of think, well, of course, this was a massive success and everybody bought it at the time. But actually, that's not true. It's a It's been a retrospective hit. Well, it's had a long tail because I want to say that the fifth platinum happened like this summer. Oh, that really? That they hit the, wow. the five times platinum. So it oh, had been four be for a while. Like it built over years and years and years. So it had a long tail. But I think it was recently certified five times platinum. Right. It is their highest selling album ever now. Uh, and probably became that in the, by the, I would think, by the late 90s or something. But yeah, it's interesting that when it was first released, it was, it was popular, sure. But it wasn't, it wasn't Nevermind. You know, it wasn't the enormous no. success that we now think it was. There's so many things to talk about with this, um, with just Alice in Chains in general, right? Because like, if if you hear things like the big four of grunge get thrown around with Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Nirvana, and Pearl Jam, but Nirvana didn't even really want to be part of that, you know, category of uh, music. You I, know. Don't, I don't think any of them did. I mean, that's the thing. If you well, <laughs> and they talked about the, like getting so of sick bands. of those questions of like, oh, what's the Seattle sound and and all that? Like, they were just so over it with the you know, constant yeah. trying to like categorize, which well, is kind of building on our conversation from last time too. Yeah. And they all do sound genuinely different. Like, you know, yes. Okay. It's loud guitar music, which obviously, and, and not slick loud guitar music, which was a reaction to sort of late eighties rock uh, and pop stuff. But really, yeah, you put a Pearl Jam album next to a Nirvana album, next to a Soundgarden album, next to an Alice in Chains album, none of them sound like one another at all other than the fact that they've got loud guitars um yeah it's quite i I always found that quite amusing especially again we've talked about this before uh with sort of metalers you know sort of decrying grunge and i'm like have you ever listened to a sound garden album or an alice in chains album they are metal bands there's you know no they're not slayer but they are clearly metal bands well and and that's just it right like when you say grunge i think even like to this day, like what that conjures in my head is mostly, it, it is those four bands for sure. Like if you ask me just to think off the top of my head, like some grunge bands or that's who I would sort of name. But also, I don't even know that I could like pinpoint exactly what in my head I mean by grunge, right? I just knew at the time for me, it was the type of music that seemed less technical and more raw, but not as fun as punk that totally washed away everything that I had listened to up to, you know, that point in my life. And so I just didn't feel like I even really had a super good foothold on grunge. And at the time had a very sort of um, anti-grunge, you know, mentality, just because it it kind of meant the death of most of what I was really listening to on a daily basis at the time. And so... um, even now, it's really difficult to actually pin down, like, what is a grunge sound? It's one of those things, it's like, you know it when you hear it, sort of, but 
that's only because the the bands that came after the sort of second wave were all imitative and they were all trying to sound like other bands that we now call grunge but again they still didn't actually sound the same it's not like there is an identifiable sound or style that unites all these bands it's a fa- it was a fascinating shift really yeah for sure. And, and again, like trying to put a label on all of that, when you just mentioned, it's like those those sounds were extremely diverse. And then to try to just paint with a broad brush there. But it, I think it worked in some ways because it helped like create momentum for a lot of bands that might not otherwise have oh, gotten totally, it yeah. because they were able to be part of that quote unquote grunge scene, much like the hair metal scene back in the day and stuff like that. So but yeah, yeah super the Bay Area thrash scene. Yeah, it's uh, you know th- these things are all for the purposes of marketing, and people can decry that and say that it's artificial and what have you. But it also, you know, the cream rises to the top, and yeah. without the sort of the Seattle hype and the grunge hype, you know, who knows whether Alice in Chains would have be- been sort of you know uh, people would have been aware of them, and an album like this might not have. Uh, had the sort of acclaim and reach that it did. I mean, notwithstanding uh, Man in the Box being, you know, very popular on MTV, I know. But even that, I think Nevermind was already out by the time Man in the Box became a hit, I think. Um, I think you're right. Although, actually, now I've said that, I'm not so sure. Because that's anyway, 19, anyway. I want to say that was 1990, but I yeah, so could be mistaken might, about that. It might predate it then. Anyway, before we get too yes. far down that rabbit hole <laughs> we're already onto the onto the band of the arm um uh let's talk about the last episode a couple of things before we do this is nothing to do with the last episode whatsoever but i just saw this uh we're recording as we record by the way it's uh, a week or so before the anniversary of the release of dirt just to give you some idea about the date it's mid-september and i just read that ginger you know the metal female fronted metal band they're a ukrainian band Oh, and yeah. they were they were apparently given special permission by the Ukrainian government to leave the country because obviously there are heavy restrictions at the moment as you can imagine about sort of entering and leaving Ukraine to, they were given special permission by the government to leave the country and tour as national ambassadors for Ukraine which now that, that is rules. pretty fucking cool yeah that rules <laughs> like when your government recognizes that a metal band is actually you know an ambassador for your country that's amazing i love it yeah and that's a band that has really started to gain a lot of mind share over the past couple of years for sure i mean they're yes absolutely they are very good yeah uh the other thing i just want to mention is we get one of the things about doing this show you know listeners know that we do not do a lot of sort of pushing and promotion and what have you for the show really you know nowhere near as much as we could do but we nevertheless find ourselves on email lists of bands and labels and what have you and pr people uh, and occasionally more than occasionally <laughs> quite regularly get pr emails most of them to be perfectly honest with you because we're not a news show most of them we just ignore you know we just kind of like whatever that's not for us but every so often one of them piques my interest and we got one a couple of weeks ago there's a label called wormhole death that sends us a lot of pr emails like every single day we get something from them um but they released an album by a band called i say a band a project called nucleosynthesis 
And the album's called Epoch of Chirality. Now, that alone should give you some idea. Yeah, no, it just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> right, of what we're looking at here. It's a, a science fiction metal instrumental concept album. Uh, the only way I can really describe it is kind of like if 65 Days of Static, the, the post-rock band, were more metal. Um, and even that might not, you know, uh, explain really to people what it is. But it's pretty good. The the idea of just an SF metal instrumental kind of caught my eye. I thought, oh, I'll give that a listen. And actually, I did wind up getting it because it's pretty good. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if anybody else wants to check it out. It's, uh, yeah, it's good because it is purely instrumental. So it's good. I don't want to say background music because that, you know, that makes it sound like you, it's not something you should pay attention to. You should. But it's if you like listening to instrumental stuff, especially while you're doing other things, yeah, it's a really good album for that. Maybe good writing music, depending on what you're writing? Depending on what you're writing, yeah, yeah. for sure. Because there are parts where it's quite heavy and fast. <laughs> well, I will definitely check it out. I did not um, off of the email that we got, but I will circle back around to that. So, Like I say, I'll put it in the show notes as well so everybody can go check it out. Because you can get it on Bandcamp. Whoops. Uh, editing Anthony here. I completely fucked that up. <laughs> the band is called Epoch of Chirality. The album is called Nucleosynthesis. Uh, easy mistake to make, let's be honest. But go and check it out. The link's in the show notes. All right. So we want to jump over to our Facebook group and talk about the Trivium episode. Indeed. So you know what's funny about this is I was putting my notes together last night, and I usually just search in my Google Drive for like whatever the last episode was, and Trivium kept coming up. And I was like, no, what was the last one that Anthony did? Because he did the last episode. And I was so sure that Trivium was my album <laughs> that I just felt like I had these missing notes somewhere. And I'm like, what? Awesome. Wait a second. I'm looking on the Facebook group for the thread and I'm like, what? where's the last episode? I'm like, oh, no, it is Trivium in the last episode. And speaking of notes, I love that you shared a picture of your scribbles uh, from that oh, particular yes. episode, the notes that you make to yourself. And I love that you handwrite them. I'm looking at a similar notepad of scribbles right now for this episode. Yep, that's what I do. <laughs> that's so funny. I do I do all of my scribbles in uh, Google Docs because I'm constantly like pulling in links and stuff like that to different things. But it's right. all, it, I love seeing behind the process. So that was as much a treat for me as hopefully some of the listeners. So <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, so Kenneth said, just under three hours. Well, that's value for money, I guess. <laughs> and you were saying how it's, it was literally our longest episode. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have actually started to track this now. I have one of the things that I don't that I do do electronically is I have a a spreadsheet of uh, all of our show notes, all the episodes, you know, everything that we've done and what have you, just to keep track of the show as a whole because we've now been doing it for seven years. Um, and uh, yeah, I have one of the things I've started doing is keeping track of what our longest episode is, and that is not by much. Uh, it's only by a few minutes, but nevertheless, yeah, that is now our longest episode ever. Very interesting. Um, CJ said, wow, intriguing. I'm not sure I could spend 30 seconds talking about Trivium. So three hours is intriguing. <laughs> he used intriguing twice. Uh, and, and then Joe said, well, given how much time they start off talking about other things first, I'm guessing they only spend about 10 minutes on the album itself. We did ramble quite it a bit. It hurts because it's true. Yeah. You know, yeah. it hurts because it's true. Uh but yeah, I, I like to feel that there's a few camps out there. Some like the ramble and some just like the, the album thing. And then there's some yeah. who like the whole peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So yeah, um, Phil was having an existential crisis over the fact that he didn't do his homework before the episode. And I think everybody was able to 
assure him that it's okay. You could still listen to it if you didn't <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> You're still um, allowed. <laughs> but I understand for those of us that have like that process of, I want to give the album a good listen, and yeah. then I'm going to listen to the podcast. And so, uh, yeah, Ben said, interesting choice. I loved Trivium when Ascendancy came out and then immediately went off them again when they released The Crusade. Listened to this album when it came out and thought it was brilliant. So I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts. Um, so I think, I, I mean, I saw a few comments about that, just about how the Trivium discography has been kind of a mixed bag for some. Yeah. And it seems like at some point people fell off and maybe haven't jumped back on. So I'm, I mean, I have, I'm not as familiar with their whole discography. So, but I can't imagine that you wouldn't jump back on with, <laughs> with this album. Like, it just seems to me like it's. It it seems to be one of those things where like they which you know a pattern that quite a few bands seem to seem to follow especially in more recent years is they had that sort of explosive rise uh, and yeah album like Crusade was you know very popular I think we said that that's still their highest selling album um, and they kind of exploded onto the scene and became very popular very quickly uh, and then went into the wilderness for a few years and they were still putting out records but they weren't as popular for whatever reason and now that they're more kind of elder statesmen yeah uh you know in a way they are enjoying a resurgence of popularity machine head actually kind of did that i mean machine head was partly because they kept experimenting with different styles but nevertheless they had the similar thing paradise lost there you go take your drink if you're uh, <laughs> you know um if you're doing the drinking game but they had that same thing they've come back in recent years their recent albums have been some of their best sellers because they are now seen as like oh they are elder statesmen they've been around for 30 years doing their thing and actually they're still pretty good at it it's strange how that happens really isn't it yeah definitely i mean it's in like the elder statesman thing is such an interesting thing to think about too right because it does take a lot of things to happen for a band to to be able to even become an elder statesman, right? To be able to stick around yeah. long enough and have enough albums come out where you can have this sort of ebb and flow of your musical journey. Um, so many bands just never make it out of that first phase. And so, yeah, it's always interesting. And I think as fans, I know for me specifically, for those bands that do have that sort of longer discography, I can go back as, you know, an becoming an old man now and look back at that whole discography and appreciate the things that I didn't like before more yeah. now in the sense of the broader picture. Um, well, it's fascinating for me as well, because remember, you know, as we've talked about before, metal is a relatively young genre and there was no such thing as an elder statesman of metal for the first 30 years of its existence. How could there be? So, I mean, look at this album. Dirt was 1992. That's 20 years after Black Sabbath released Paranoid. Only, know, 20, only 20 years between Paranoid and this. And this album is now 30 years old itself. <laughs> that... So, yeah, it, it's, it's nuts to think about. It like I say, when, when this album about. was out, there was, even then, there was no such thing as an elder statesman of metal because it just hadn't been around long enough. Crazy. I know, and like for for people our age, we've been here for most of it, mm. and that I was I, literally born the year that Paranoid was released, right? And so it's like <laughs> that. I think just contributes, you know, for I, at least for me to the the whole thing of like it, how it's just so embedded in me, 
you know, just like right. as a as a human being, because it's like we've been here. It's kind of like uh, video games in a lot of yep. ways, right? Like for yep. people who are our age, like you, you've been here for the whole thing. We You've remember the Pong. years before video games. Yep. yep. Yeah, absolutely. All the way through, you know, now some of the VR stuff that we're seeing, like it is, it is wild to think about. Um, there's a whole discussion in this thread about subgenres of music and new metal in particular, <laughs> which I am not going to dive deep into, but needless to say, um, I think, I think Phil made a nice comment about, you know, love the discussion of subgenres. And I, and I think it's a bit of a moving target, which is what we had also talked yeah, about during yeah. that discussion of like, there are some bands that you, I think can all agree on might fit in a particular subgenre. And then there's others where people are going to have, um, you know, different feelings about sort of where it falls within the spectrum. So, um, but go there and contribute to that discussion. Uh, let's see. Phil said, now that I've listened to the episode, I definitely need to go back and listen to the album and in general need to go back and listen to more Trivium. I got into them a bit after I saw them at a Mayhem Festival and I really got into Shogun for a bit, but weirdly they just sort of drifted out of consciousness after that and I don't know why. Um, and Eowyn, I know I'm pronouncing your name wrong, I'm sure, um, but said, another great album I would have completely ignored without this podcast. Cheers, fellas. 100% agree with Anthony about the second bit of fall into your hands being a standout. I skipped forward to find just that bit more than once. I never really <laughs> gave Trivium a proper go before, but I will now. Same as y'all, I heard in a good way shades of Maiden, Paradise Lost, Pantera, Corn. Uh, he said, I was trying to describe this album to a friend, and he said it's summarized as modern heavy metal, which kind of resonates. I mean, could you get any more generic? But yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's kind of a melting pot of everything that came before, (laughs) right? Um, Jay said, I primarily listen to your podcast and a couple of podcasts on weird fiction when I listen to podcasts nowadays. So when the discussion of The King in Yellow and its influence on the album (laughs) began, I really felt like my interests had converged in a really awesome way. Last episode on A Perfect Circle was a lot of fun and really interesting listen as well. Great discussions to listen to. So Jay appreciates the, you know, the the fluff, (laughs) you know, the the, that kind of stuff. yeah, King and Yellow. I mean, we could plug that every episode. What a great, what a great collection. Uh, Tortoise said, before I say anything about this episode, Matt Heafy wrote the music for The Witcher on Netflix. Go watch his Twitch session where he was recording the metal version of Toss a Coin to Your Witcher. That is awesome. Absolutely yeah. awesome. I have yeah. not heard the metal version of Toss a Coin to Your Witcher, but now I must. Yeah. Um. And let's see, as far as the episode goes, he went on to say, this is probably the best Trivium album to date, most varied musically, almost so much that you could just call it a heavy metal album and be done with it. I do agree with Anthony, at times there is a bit too much drumming, um, which of course I disagree with, uh, <laughs> but I also agree with Brian that there that too much drumming is awesome, uh, so give me more. My bias because of the Battlecross connection is unabashed, he said. When Anthony said, I wish uh, they would have gone back around and played that section a few more times, I did a double take. No fading out, just end the song. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- th- I think that's well documented, your dislike of the fade out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it, actually, that comes up yeah. <laughs> today. That comes up again for this album. Yeah, um, you, you are a fan of, an, of a song ending definitively. properly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, let's see what else we have on here. Uh, Daniel said, uh, here I was going to enjoy an, another two, uh, two plus hour long episode when just 15 minutes in, I get sidetracked by this recommendation for a YouTube series. I haven't even continued the episode as of writing this. That was the YouTube series we talked about with uh, subgenres and uh, oh, yeah, things yeah. like that. So 
Uh, let's see what else we have here. Uh, yeah, which Charles... a few people actually said that they'd started watching uh, after I plugged it. So good. I'm glad that people do actually, you know, uh, check out the links that we put in the show notes and stuff. Uh, Charles Andre said, love the discussion about genres at the beginning. I have to agree with Brian about it only being useful so far as it doesn't become a means of dismissing bands before even listening to them. I will call back to our grunge conversation a couple of minutes yeah. ago. Uh, he said, and I have no idea what core is. So, uh, it seems like the new, new, yeah, new being <laughs> NU. Uh, he said, this album really isn't doing it for me. It's an intriguing combo of, uh, new and power metal. I think my reservations are because I can't help but think something in the vocalist tone reminds me too much of Avenged Sevenfold slash Seven Dust slash Disturbed. It feels like I'm watching the ending credits to a Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Oh. I got to pause on that for a second. That's, that is some harsh criticism. Wow. Oh, that, that's, that's one of the better zingers I've read in a while. I feel like I'm watching the ending credits to a Zack Snyder movie. There's a strong Scorpion King slash Queen of the Damned slash Van Helsing early 2000s, quote unquote, inspired by the motion picture vibes here. Wow. Also harsh. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, we're, we're calling this fight right now. I mean, he's already dead for crying out loud. Um <laughs> Musically, they're really good, though. I guess there's just not much that grabs me emotionally in power metal. Uh, like, sort of harsh criticism aside, that's interesting in the sense that it's like, this doesn't feel... It's I'm interpreting here, but it feels like Charles Andre is saying that it doesn't feel like it's doing anything new. It's very kind of like right which it's is very probably, kind of like you know which is probably fair i mean i think we talked about that a bit on the on that episode in the you know it wasn't revolutionary in any way it was just really really well done yeah yeah well and i think for me not having listened to a ton of their music previously like it felt new to me because right, I'm right. also new to their sound, you know, kind of overall. That's a good and point. I think we forget that sometimes too, especially when we're talking about bands that we just know inside and out, right? That we've listened to so many times. It is, if someone's coming to that new, like it, there is a freshness to it. And for me, that was definitely the trivium thing because my whole thought while listening to them is, holy crap, how did I miss this um, for, the, for the time that these guys have been in the business? Um, Do you know, it occurred to me actually that, that Hearing that made me think of something that I was considering a, a week or two ago uh, as I was prepping for this episode. We haven't done any modern power metal, to the best of my knowledge, have we? I mean, the closest we've got to that really would be a monomath, I think. I think you're probably right. Yeah, I, and I, well, by that I mean the, what you think of as the classic European, prototypically German power metal, you know, that kind of... Songs about eagles and dragons, and you know, yeah, <laughs> you know the sort of thing I mean. Um, yeah, maybe we should. Maybe we should try and fit one in this volume or something. Because oh, I got one. Oh, Don't okay, you okay, worry. all right. You're ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> do not, do not worry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> uh, but more, more is better. I, the power metal discussion. I really can't wait to get into because I think again, that's a that's open to interpretation i think but there are some clear through lines when you talk about power metal but also a lot of it does not grab me 
And well, that, that's the thing. It's, yeah, a lot, a lot of it that I put people link to and I listen to on YouTube and stuff, and I'm like, this is good, but I will not remember it in, like, half an hour's time. It does, like, that's, and that's one of my biggest sort of hurdles, is that a lot of it sounds very samey to me. Mm. Um, but, but, but a lot of modern power metal bands very, very clearly cite Halloween, early Halloween, as a, as a big influence. As which they is, should. Right. But, that, you know, and obviously people know that I love early Halloween. So, yeah, you know, all right, well, let's move. Let's not get bogged down <laughs> in it now. But, yeah, I'm glad to know that we've got something on the on the card coming up. Yeah. Remind me when we stop recording and we can revisit that. Uh, OK, point. OK. Uh, so uh, so Joe said overall interesting album. I don't always like the harsh vocals, so prefer the tracks with less such as No Way Back But Through, which would have been a good album opener or single, as mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of whammy bar in the latter part of the album, unfortunately not on songs I like as much. I really like the closing epic, The Phalanx, although I agree with Anthony that the end isn't great. Uh, let's see, we got a couple more here. Dave said, this is a great episode because it made me appreciate and like this band. Their musicianship is great. They're fellow nerds and they're doing awesome and inventive things. I love all of that. There's just one problem. Probably because I'm a broken death and power metal fan, the parts of the song where there are clean vocals just do not work for me. They change the entire tone of the song in a way I don't find satisfying. I enjoy the harsh vocals, but then the clean ones come in and it just takes me out. I think I had the same problem with Orbit Culture. Either way, I'm glad to know Trivium is out there doing their thing, and while they may not be for me, as Brian pointed out, I can recommend them to people who may not realize that there are metal bands for them. Yeah, I I think that's a pretty good summation of uh, everything that we talked about, really, isn't it? Yep. Uh, Todd made a mention uh, of our Alice in Chains homework, and uh, he said, yet another 80s glam metal band for the next episode? How about a little variety, Brian? Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that uh, briefly. Kenneth said, I was putting a genre, if I was putting a genre on Trivium, I'd go for power metalcore. Uh, there's some really great bits in all of the songs, but invariably it goes a bit Dragon Force, and I lose interest. It was worth checking out, though. I never would have gotten near anything with a dragon on the cover. First of all, I'm feeling a little bit attacked as a huge uh, <laughs> fantasy role-playing game fan um, that, that, we're, that there's not enough love for dragons on the covers of things. Uh, Andrew said, man, I had Trivium totally wrong. I never listened to them, but I'd always kind of assumed that they were a later generation, like early 90s thrash band. Don't know where that idea came from, but it stuck, and I never gave them any time, as that's not really my thing. So the album was a pleasant surprise with its varied styles and epics. But there's one thing that really stopped me enjoying it fully, and that's those new metal sounding choruses, which I find really uninspired and dull. Personal preference, of course, but those cliches uh, that they do so well are exactly what I dislike about that style of music. That being said, I enjoyed a good deal of it with Phalanx easily being my favorite, uh, chorus notwithstanding, and I can totally hear the Maiden influence in at the start and at the three minute-ish shift. But the end chorus is one thing in the album that really pricked my ears uh, on the first listen. I was doing some work. He said, so not sure that I'll take it any further, but an interesting album at the very least. Yeah. Um, I mean, as we said on the episode, pretty much the exact opposite to me. <laughs> I loved the choruses, and I thought they were some of the best parts of the album. So, horses for courses. Yeah, but I think the cool thing is it seems like there was a handful of people, at least, who listened to the episode and maybe haven't given... Yes trivium a hard look which was kind of where i was at too and then this album was a nice surprise for them yeah the system works <laughs> it does yes. uh, but, which is kind of in the spirit of the whole facebook group in the first place and i think our our community is there is a lot of trying to share 
you know, things yeah. with people that they may not have given a chance before. And I think we see it all the time in the discussions on the Facebook group is just people kind of stumbling into something that they had never even thought to listen to before. And that's yep. super cool. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we 100% encourage that. That is one of my favorite things about the group. I mean, we've literally done episodes, Orbit Culture. We would not have done if somebody had not posted one of their videos uh, to the Facebook group. And I went and listened to it and I was like, oh, actually, this is pretty good. And then when I was looking around for newer bands to talk about on the show, you know, sort of that one came up again and I was like, oh yeah, I remember enjoying one of theirs that somebody had posted. So yeah, it's, uh, it, again, as I said, last episode, future, uh, metal has always been a future looking genre. It's always been a, a, you know, a forward thinking, forward looking genre. And part of that is about discovering new music to listen to rather than just wallowing in old stuff and nostalgia. I mean, you know, this current album <laughs> we're going to talk about today, notwithstanding, that is a big part of why I, and I, I think most people love metal is because there's always something new to find, always something new to listen to. And so, yeah, making the Facebook group a big part of that is absolutely in line with uh, what I want from it. Well, I wonder if we'll introduce any people to the obscure band that we're going to talk about today. In our episode, <laughs> before we do, before we do, so firstly, it, uh, for any if anybody who might be a new listener, especially because obviously this album is bound to set off key keywords or you know search keywords and stuff all over the place. Uh, if you want to join in the Facebook group discussions, go to facebook.com/groups/thrashedout. That's where you can find us, and you can also support us as a patron at patreon.com/thrashedout. Uh, and, uh, you know, help us keep the show going. And the reason I mentioned Patreon as well now is because our next listener choice episode will be in two episodes time. So not next episode, but the episode after. So I will put the, uh, I will open the thread on Patreon for patrons to nominate albums for us to cover sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and then we will do the random selection from that list on the next episode to cover in the episode following that. So once again, to remind you, uh, this is only open to patrons on Patreon. We will open a thread on Patreon. You must put your nomination for an album in there. The rules will be stated in that post. I won't go over them here. Um, but you must do it there on Patreon. We won't take nominations in any other way. So you must be uh, a patron in order to take part in the listener choice poll but as we've said before you know it's only a dollar uh, per episode it's uh, as cheap as we can make it so go along there join sign up uh you know make a pledge and then you can take part in that uh poll and you who knows you might get lucky and we'll cover the album you want us to cover in a couple of episodes time and it's always cool to see what those nominations are especially as we keep rolling on with each volume and take some yeah. of those off the list, even through our own choices. And so yeah. it'll be good to see what people are kind of putting up there this time. Absolutely. So let's talk about Alice in Chains. Uh, you, I th well, actually, go on. It, it meant talk about the 80s glam bit first <laughs> that Phil yeah. mentioned on the Facebook group. <laughs> well, and also just kind of like why this album now. And so you would kind of yes. mention it at the top, but the... 29th of September is the 30th anniversary of Dirt. Um, 
we also talked about how you and I at some point were going to do an Alice in Chains album. It was just a matter of time that one of us was going to nominate an album. So it just felt like because it was my pick this time around that this was a good time yeah. to talk about Alice in Chains and specifically this album. Um, so the glam roots thing, we'll, we'll just, uh, and the thing about Alice in Chains is like <laughs> for a band that, I mean, what a, what a history this band has. There's been books written about them. I am certainly not an expert on the history of Alice in Chains, but there are so many little nuggets of things that I find fascinating about this band, one of which is is the glam sort of roots that the band has. And so, uh, and there's varying stories about this stuff, but from just a couple of highlights about that, like Lane Staley was in a band called Sleaze in the mid-80s. Um, he was also in a band called Alice in Change, Chains Like Guns and Roses, with the N apostrophe yeah. uh, in the middle of it. And so he was um, he was originally a drummer and then started singing. And he was so he was doing vocals in a couple of bands that were pretty glam at the time. I wouldn't say they were like totally traditional hair metal. But um, and then Jerry Cantrell was in a band called Diamond Lie. And he was playing. um it's some very glam stuff, I think, some very hair metal stuff, if you kind of look at it. Um, and then, they, so there was a period of time where they were, like, playing in each other's bands. There was a period of time where they were together, and they were kind of using different names for the bands that they were, that the band that they were playing in. And so, but even when they finally settled on Alice in Chains as their name, there is some early demos that were recorded and I don't know if they've been officially released, but I don't believe so. One of them is called the Treehouse Tapes. And some of the songs, they do a Bowie cover on that. Um, some of the songs on there, to me, sound very Guns N' Roses inspired. Mm-hmm. But also things like Bang Tango. Um, I just get in the cult. I feel like there's there's some... Um, I actually feel like the cult is, a, although I've never seen it said, feels but like now, a very strong influence to now me. Now that you say that, actually, yeah, no, I'd never thought about that. But now that you mention it, I could see that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so they did the the Treehouse Tapes, which has some, uh, I think, a mix of some of the songs that would be, um, like, I think uh, We Die Young is on that, but also, like, some pretty hair metal, sort of sleaze metal type of stuff. And then there was a demo called Sweet Alice that also has some kind of hair metal stuff on that. So even when they finally settled on the Alice in Chains name, some of the early demo stuff was still inspired by bands that they had both played in earlier. And obviously music that at the time they liked. Um, I haven't seen any official releases of those, but hardcore Alice in Chains fans would know better. You can find both of those on YouTube. You can find the Sweet Alice demo yeah. on YouTube. You can find the Treehouse Tapes demo on YouTube. And a lot, also a lot of... Um, old live performances when they were kind of using different names. You can find old performances of uh, Jerry Cantrell when he was with Sleaze. There's definitely a Diamond Lie um, video out there from uh, sort of mid to late 80s and stuff like that. So you can definitely find bits and pieces of both Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley doing hair metal in those early days. I don't feel like it's as defined for Alice in Chains as for example, Pantera's glam metal days, which are extremely well-defined in two albums that they just don't talk about anymore. These well, are more the, sort of demo things. Right, um, and there's a really hard cutoff with the Pantera thing as well, whereas Alice in Chains feels like more that they kind of slowly 
shed the glam trappings. Yes. Uh, you know, and because even if you look at the, the, you know, the band photos and videos for things like um, Man in the Box and, you know, band photos from the facelift era and stuff, and even this one, really, they are not as uh, bedraggled. <laughs> And as, frankly, you know, unhealthy and, uh, you know, unclean looking as some of the other grunge bands from that time, there is clearly still a bit of rock swagger, if you like, in their imagery, even around this period, which some of the grunge bands absolutely did not have and didn't want to have. Um, You know, I mean, Chris, there's a photo... I'm not sure if it's on this album or on one of the singles where Cantrell's literally like bare chested and holding his jacket oh, up yeah. over it. You, you know the photo I mean? Yeah, for like, sure. Yeah. That's not, could you imagine Nirvana doing that? No. <laughs> totally. Well, and that goes to the whole like grunge thing in the first place, right? Of like what a, what a broad um, brush that, yeah. that whole, you know, category was kind of painted with. But yeah, but it is interesting to dig back into that stuff. I mean, I like the, we joke about the whole glam roots thing, but it it is kind of fascinating to see how bands, especially who are coming in at these times of transition, right, are clearly in the early stages finding their sound, also seeing what the, you know, what's going to take them to the next step. And well, I think, you know, if you're a band that's coming in late 80s, because we could also talk about, and, and I'm sure we will talk about with some of my future um, sort of quote unquote hair metal picks, that there is sort of that last phase of bands that came in in the late 80s who were strictly hair metal and then tried to yeah. carry that into the 90s and then they disappeared. I mean, you think of bands like Slaughter and stuff like that who really came in like they just didn't get that record deal until... Their entire the, existence was a t- as a yeah. glam metal band, yeah. And the thing is, like, so many of those bands were around at the same time as your Motley Crues and your Cinderellas and all that kind of stuff, but they didn't They didn't hit, they didn't get the deal, they didn't get the album out until 88, 89, sometimes even 90. And, like, those are the bands that you can see, like, they just came in, like, three to five years too late yeah. to have that r- real bump. And so any band that is... You know, as we're looking at these demos and stuff like 87, 88, 89, that's the time where things are changing. And um, so well, it doesn't surprise me at all that the sound is evolving, you the know. sound changes with it. And I was going to say, yeah. what's what fascinates me about a band like Alice in Chains, and they weren't the only one, but, you know, a lot of those Seattle bands, is not only did they themselves kind of change and evolve through that period, but then became the vanguard of the new movement, you know, what they yes. changed into essentially, as you said at the start of the show, what they changed into swept away everything that had come before. And I, you know, you can't plan that sort of thing. It's not an intention you can really have, but it is, you know, just imagine that because a lot of these bands, a lot of the Seattle bands really, really were big fans of the early rock and heavy metal stuff. You know, no, they weren't necessarily big fans of the you know the cock rock of the 80s and what have you but as you say they a lot of them started out playing that stuff so they kind of you know hated it all that much um and then you would think like their very existence and their success led to the death of that whole scene how must that have made them feel it's uh, you know, did they even notice did they realize at the time or was it not until five ten years later that they looked back and went oh shit that was our fault 
<laughs> yeah, they killed. They pulled a Tommy boy. You know, they they uh, squeezed it too hard and they yeah. and they killed it. You know, that's that is uh, one of those things. And I'm sure that wasn't the intention. I think maybe some of the bands that were sort of the second wave were like, yeah, f hair metal. Oh, and, sure, you know, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And but that's why I'm saying um, these these first ones who started out playing that kind of stuff almost. Uh, you know, like Soundgarden were another one who their early stuff is much more traditionally late '80s metal. Uh, than you know the the sound that we associate with uh, associate them with on their more successful grunge era albums. Um, whereas the second wave, as you say, they they were never glam bands to start with, or not necessarily glam, but you know that sort of uh, party rock kind of stuff. They were right. never they were never in that scene anyway because they came along after bands like Alice in Chains and right. Soundgarden. Totally. So yeah, interesting uh, sort of roots there. And then someone posted in our thread for the last episode a um I, I just mentioned the actual uh comment, but there was an old poster from one of the oh, Todd posted this uh flyer. Oh yes, from yes. An Alice in change show with just the N in the middle. Uh and it says formerly sleaze. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I don't know if it said what year it didn't say what year, but uh clearly very much 89 glam. 90 i would, would be yeah, my guess for yeah. sure um, talking about anniversaries by the way yes 30 years since this album was released and also 20 years this year since lane staley died as well so uh it's definitely the right time to be doing this episode i think yeah april 19th 2002 yeah. um and then of course um mike star in march of 2011 yes. so i mean and this band i think just has tragedy embedded in everything it really because does, yeah if you read about jerry cantrell um you know the fact that he lost his grandmother and his mother within a, a short period of time to one another a lot from what i've seen in interviews and in discussions about the bands like the way that he wrote songs after those losses he, he was deeply affected by them and so much of this music i think especially on this album from alice in chains is a mix of you know dealing with depression and also dealing with drug addiction, yeah. and well, and so, loss. I mean, one you and, know, and loss. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, and also relationships known, and loss. The best known track on this album is literally dedicated to a friend of theirs from the Seattle scene who died of an overdose. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, as you say, tragedy just writ large. Um, when so, I'm guessing because of the prevalence of MTV in America that you first became aware of them from man in the box probably yes yep absolutely that was the the video was my introduction to them on mtv and then i know i've talked about it a few times but i I actually pulled the set list for this i saw them in 1991 on my 17th birthday this was uh, oh is this the monsters of rock thing that you this was the clash of the titans one clash of the titans sorry um, yeah yeah what's interesting is i went back to pull the set list of that and Here's the set list that it says that they played that day. They start with Wood. Now, Wood was wow. not officially released until the singles soundtrack in, I want to say, May or June of 92. Right. And then it, of course, appeared on the Dirt album after that. But I know that Andrew Wood died in 1990, and Jerry Cantrell wrote that song in memory of Andrew Wood. So it's entirely possible that a year later, uh, more than a year later, that that they song playing it live, would yeah. be fully written and they had been you know playing it live at that point um they play real thing put you down we die young bleed the freak it ain't like that and they end with man in the box um which by far was their most well-known song yeah. at that particular point in time but it, it was a seven song set 
that they played to open Clash of the Titans, and they were not welcomed by the Slayer, Anthrax, and Megadeth crowds. And you've mentioned that before, and that's, you know, kind of, yeah, we can all laugh about that in retrospect. But what I've always wanted to know, because I don't think you've ever really mentioned this, is what did you think of them that night? Well, I had, if I remember correctly, like, I liked Man in the Box. And so I, you know, knew enough at that point in time that I was looking forward to seeing them there. I think, going back to my 17-year-old self, it was a quick set. and. I was more taken with how the fans were responding to them, but like, I didn't, I wasn't like, Oh my God, I can't believe that these guys are on this, right? you know, tour. I mean, they had toured with Ozzy. They were, was it the Metallica tour that they had to back out of? I think it was that, the, I think so, yeah. that they had to back out of, but like it, it didn't, to me, it didn't seem like completely ridiculous that they were touring with, I mean, the album that Anthrax was doing was persistence of time. Anthrax was very much, um, I feel like not like the other big four bands. And so it's not like all of these things were exactly the same. And Alice in Chains was the complete total difference. I just think that they were a victim of people could feel the change coming and they didn't like it. And, you know, and they didn't, they didn't want that. And it's just, um, so I don't remember feeling particularly one way or the other about it. I just, because every time I look back at that memory, it is in, the vein of within two years, Alice in Chains would be the headliner of that. Right. Absolutely. We're the, the biggest band of all four of those. A hundred percent. And just like, <laughs> so every time I think back to that memory, it's like this, it's just this moment of time where like looking back now, it was the, it was the beginning and the end of something, just not the things that I would have thought at that point in time. Yeah. You know, and, uh, before the angry Metallica defenders come in, when I say the biggest band, yes, Metallica probably sold more albums than Alice in Chains, even in 1992. I mean, as as Brian said, in terms of like who was in the zeitgeist and who would be the headliners. Yeah, and and certainly of those bands, like you know, if you look and see what they were doing for the next few years, I mean, obviously Anthrax went through major changes with John Bush coming yeah. on. And um, well, and, and so did Metallica. That's what I mean. It's just that in the wake of the Black Album, obviously they were still selling gajillions of uh, records. Totally. Um, so, so, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, so I came across them, and I think I've mentioned this before. I came across them. I'd never heard of Alice in Chains. Man in the Box was not a big hit over here. We had MTV, and maybe it had been on, but if so, I don't remember seeing it, and it certainly hadn't stuck in my mind. Um, and obviously, uh, Nevermind had come out. Grunge as a movement hadn't quite exploded. Um, but yeah, you know, Nevermind had certainly been a huge success, and people were starting to, you know, take notice of Nirvana and talking about the other bands that were coming out of this Seattle scene. Um, but I remember late night sitting at a friend's house. He had MTV, um, and we were just sitting in his lounge watching, you know, late night shows, Beavis and Butthead, and video countdowns and what have you. It was probably literally like one, two o'clock in the morning or something. We used to go around his house and stay up sometimes, literally all night. We 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 just wouldn't sleep. We'd stay up all night and then go back to college in the morning. Because uh, when you're in your late teens, early twenties, you can do that sort of thing. Um, can't do that now. Uh, and he had seen Wood was in rotation, and he had seen it before, and none of us had. And it came on, 
and he immediately went, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, watch this. Now, bear in mind, this guy was not particularly a grunge guy. He was mostly actually into um, sort of, you know, regular metal and industrial at that point. Uh, but it was like, everybody watch this. Uh, this is great. And especially listen to the bit three minutes in at the end. And we were like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, and of course, what he meant was that beautiful, odd chord change at the end of Wood, uh, you know, the coder of the song, which... And he was right. Like, I, don't, I don't know whether it necessarily had the same impact on the other guys in the group, but for me, bearing in mind that, you know, I'm an old school Genesis and REM fan, so I love a good strange chord <laughs> and a weird chord change. And he was absolutely right. I heard that and I was like, oh, oh, that's new. Oh, I like that. Um, and so from that moment on, I was I was kind of primed, if you like, to listen for new Alice in Chains stuff. And then shortly afterwards, this album came out. Uh, and it rapidly became it's probably it's probably true to say that this was basically my favorite album of the whole grunge era you know when we think about the heyday huh, of okay. grunge i could i could make an argument for soundgarden's super unknown possibly overtaking it in a couple of years time but certainly at that time when grunge was exploding and everybody was just obsessed with seattle Honestly, this is probably my favourite album of that entire era and was almost immediately, I took to this album within a single listen, I was just like, wow, I'd never heard anything quite like it. And it was right up my alley. I think for me, I was just looking at dates too. And so um, Facelift came out in August of 90, Nevermind came out in September of 91. Yeah. And I'm just right, thinking which, back which to is that. what I mean, because Wood was in rotation in sort of summer of, because as you say, of the singles. Of 92. Right. Yeah. So yep. the summer of 92 was when Wood was in rotation prior to this album come out. And like I say, summer of 92, everybody was aware of the grunge thing. You know, everybody got Bad Motor Finger as well, I think, by that point. And certainly Nevermind had, you know, already done the rounds and been a success. But it wasn't yet quite the big explosion. Obviously, Pearl Jam's 10, I think, had already been out by that point as well. But it wasn't quite yet the big explosion. It was a really interesting period. Totally. And Bad Motor Finger came out October 91. So you had September 91. Right, Never right. mind. Um, that one came out in October. I'm just looking back to kind of jog my own memory, but um, I, thinking back to that, what's interesting to me is like when Facelift came out, I wouldn't, were they even talking about that being grunge at that no. point? In, no. no. So I don't me, think grunge as a term even came around until 92. So like for me, Alice in Chains Facelift was just a metal album. And I think it's the, I would say that that's my favorite Alice in Chains album is, um, is facelift. If I was just picking one to do as far as like being near and dear to my heart, it would be facelift over uh dirt. Um, and we can talk about why as we get into to some of the things. I just it, they're just very different albums. Um, they are, yeah, for me. Um, yeah, so just but I think in terms of like the album that I listened to the most of the grunge bands of that time, if it's not facelift, it's 10 from Pearl Jam. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. No, and I, I wouldn't never... even say it's my favorite. I just, there was a period of time where the people, the friends that I was hanging around with, because um, what's interesting too is my best friend that I grew up with, who we lit, had extremely similar musical tastes and listened to everything together, he was a year of he ahead of me. And so my senior year of high school, which was 91, 92, he was in college. 
And so it just so happens that this is also when grunge is hitting and everything. So I had friends who were listening to more of that stuff. Whereas if I was still primarily hanging out with my, you know, hair and thrash metal friend, we, I probably would not even have heard the extent of this music that I heard at that particular point in time. But it was just like the group of friends that I was hanging out with. Um, it was Pearl Jam's 10 and then, uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic from Red Hot Chili Peppers oh, yeah. was a yeah, big yeah. one in the rotation. But 10 was like, that was just in complete constant rotation all the time from the time that it came out, like until I went, <laughs> like wow. until I wasn't hanging out with those people anymore. Like it was. I never took to Pearl Jam. Like I like one well, or two songs, you know, Jeremy and Alive. Yeah, they're great. What have you? But I, I never took to them as a band. I don't even own 10. I'm maybe the only person in the world who doesn't have a copy of 10. <laughs> well, what's interesting, though, is Alice in Chains is the only band where I can even say that I like more than one of the albums from that band. Because outside of 10, I don't like anything else that Pearl Jam has put out. Oh, wow. It was that album for me. For Wait, Soundgarden, not Soundgarden? Super Unknown. That's, that's, that's the only one. It. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I don't even know how many Soundgarden albums I owned. I Wait, would have maybe, thought Bad Motorfinger would be up actually no. Way. Is uh, let's see. I'm I'm showing my lack of knowledge about this. Uh, no, it's Bad Motorfinger. That's the album. Oh, okay, right, right. It's I was going to say I love Super Unknown. I would have been surprised if that was your favorite album of theirs. Yeah, yeah. It's Bad Motorfinger. It's Pearl Jam's Ten. Um, for Nirvana, I don't even have a favorite album. Like I don't. Even, I mean, to be fair, just, they only put three albums out. Yeah, so, I mean, I yeah. don't even. I never really got into them, really at all. Uh, but Alice in Chains, like Facelift, I bought when it came out, and it was awesome and probably my favorite one. And then Dirt, when Dirt came out, I remember coming, because that came out in the fall of 92, which mm-hmm. was my freshman year of college. And we were still listening to that in the summer of 93. Like when, yeah. we, all, when we all came home from college, Dirt was in heavy rotation with that group of friends um, that had all been listening to 10 before like that was the album that everybody moved to um after that was dirt well and i never stopped listening to it like i i mean yes i was listening to it during that period and it was in heavy rotation pretty much throughout the 90s for me but also uh this is the album that i put on every year on the anniversary of lane staley's death like i have it i have it marked in my calendar every year on that day I listen to Dirt through in its entirety. So even though I maybe these days only listen to it once a year, I do literally listen to it every single year because, yeah, like I say, I love this album so much. And it's such a... Lane Staley's death just depresses me. It makes me angry and depressed and sad and upset and fucking drugs, man. Heroin. God. It just... It makes me so angry. Oh my god, and, and it's such like embedded in the this scene. Not that it wasn't oh, embedded yeah, no, in like other genres of music, but there's just this scene just seems so <clears throat> like completely just, you can't separate it. Yeah. And what a waste. How many talented young people were lost at, you know in this scene and at this time. And as you say, it's not just this scene, but God almighty. Yep. Some a talent like Staley such a fucking great vocalist great lyricist you know and just gone just wasted it's horrible horrible yeah unbelievable 
All right, so let's move on to talk about the album proper then. As we said, it was released in late 92, uh, just kind of around the time when the whole grunge phenomenon was peaking. It was really well-timed release, actually. Um, it's 58 minutes long, and there are 12 songs on it. And I'm, I'm emphasising that because I didn't even realise... Because I, I, you know, my copy of this album is a CD from 1992. So <laughs> I didn't even realise that there are apparently lots of different versions and different track listings of this album now. Uh, because of the, what I know as the opening of Hate to Feel is apparently on some editions a separate track called Iron Lung. Uh, or not, sorry, Iron Gland, isn't it? Yes. With Tom Aria doing vocals, bizarrely. Um, I mean, you know, you want your heavy metal connection. There it is. And also, uh, uh, is it Down in a Hole being swapped around in the order, I think? Yes. On this one, on the digital version that I listened to, Down in a Hole is song four. Right, which is very odd to me because, yeah, the the version, the, the original CD version that I've got, Down in a Hole, is the penultimate track before Wood. Um so yeah, very odd. But we are we are going to do we're going to follow that original CD version. So the the order that we do the tracks in may be different, dear listener, to what you're used to. But it is what was originally released. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. And I'm actually interested to talk about that because we talk so much about what the order right of tracks are on an album, and there's some very different choices made on. There are, versions. there are, but, and this is kind of giving things away a bit, but I will say because Wood, because Wood was obviously recorded before the sessions for this main album, it even as a different producer, for heaven's sake, uh, which is probably why it sounds, the sound of, of Wood is a little different to the rest of the album as a result. And because that, on all versions, as far as I know, is the last track in the album, it's effectively tacked on to the end of the album. It kind of doesn't matter because... Yes, if Down in a Hole was the last track on some editions and not on others, that would make quite a difference, I think, to how the album ends and the feel of the ending of the album. Um, but because Wood is always the last track and because right. it, like I say, literally doesn't sound the same as the rest of the album in some ways, the guitar tone is completely different. Uh, I don't actually think it makes that much difference to the ultimately to sort of how the album ends in terms of track ordering anyway. But certainly earlier on in the album it would make a difference for sure although i do yeah I'll, I'll be interested to talk about it when we get to it but you mentioned the sound of the album so i just want to pull a couple of quick things from like interview snippets and things like that about the actual sound of this album so this album was produced by uh dave jordan i yeah. believe if i'm not mistaken who correct, also yeah. did facelift and so a couple of things about the sound of this album he did an interview with music radar um where he talks about the drums and he credits Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich for helping him find the right drum sound at one-on-one -on -one studio in LA. He says, we recorded it at one-on-one -on -one where Metallica did their black album. Lars told me that they had this 31 inch woofer for the kick drum. I rented a PA system and put the kick drum tons, uh, kick drum toms and snare through this woofer. Plus these huge slide monitors, he told Music Radar. That went into the room sound, and it made the drum sound like artillery going off. I credit <laughs> Lars with turning me on to that room. 
That is amazing, considering the, you know, what would then happen in a decade's time with Lars and drum sounds. <laughs> well, and he went on to talk about, I know, right? And he went on to talk about the um, guitar tones and the uh, the vocals and things like that. So Yeah, the guitars, said, they apparently used, they, compl- they blended three different amps to get yes. that massive sound that Cantrell has on this album, which is just... What a crazy thing. Yeah, so it's not even... You can't say, oh, what amp, what amp is that sound? Well, actually, it's three. <laughs> right. He recorded each riff through high, mid, and low-frequency amps to get three different tones. Then those tracks were double and triple-tracked to fatten up the sound. Jordan and engineer Brian Karlstrom built a customized splitter box that split the guitar into three amps and then cut down on the hissing and buzzing created from such a process. So that's where that sort of thickness comes from. And it really is a thick guitar sound as well, isn't it? You know, considering they're a one guitar band, uh, you know, they absolutely sound as dense guitar-wise as any uh, twin guitar band. For sure. And then when it came to Staley's vocals, he said, I triple-tracked him and he sounded great. He knocked out his parts and just sang great. I made this effect using delays on Lane's vocals with an even-tied harmonizer. In fact, I called the effect Lane Staley. Uh, reverb can darken things up, but delays keep things hard and powerful. None of the mixes took long. A lot of them were done in just half an hour. So wow. lots of like layering and things like that to create the sound of this album, um, which I think really works into the album's favor because there are songs that are very sort of slow in tempo on this album, and the heaviness really comes from just how thick yeah, you know the the vocals and the guitars are. Yeah, well, and it speaks to. I mean, again, you know, this is the album really that proves that they are a heavy metal band. I think, uh, you know, for any of the naysayers, but also this is an album that modern sludge and stoner metal bands will cite as an influence. Which, yes, you know, which on the face of it, you'd go, "What, Alice in Chains?" But you listen to this album, and as you say, especially that guitar tone, and yeah. you're like, "Oh, actually, yeah, I can see that." I think you can totally see that, and um, and a couple of those snippets were from a, a blog called Rock and Roll Insight from a 2017. Um, oh, cool. And I also found a interview from Rip Magazine, 1993 with Jerry Cantrell, where he talks about a lot of the different songs on the album, but a couple of like larger things I wanted to hit before we dive into the individual tracks. Um, he was asked by Rip Magazine, would you call Dirt a depressing album? And he said, it's a dark album, but it's not meant to be a bummer. They're just songs. They're points of view from one period in time, one hour of one day that I felt that way. Um, you know, he said, the reason I think it's cool is that a lot of people can relate to feeling down. Shit happens. That's what it's about. It's a release for us. I hate for somebody to get the picture that I'm saying that you have to be bummed out all the time and you go out and get fucked up. He said, I'm not telling anybody to do anything. That's not what the album is about at all. And that's not what we're about. There's a lot of fiction and symbolism involved on the record, but there's a heavy grain of truth too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the overriding is atmosphere and emotion and feel of this album is just sadness, really, isn't it? Um, I mean, yes. And for me, that is the reason that if I'm going to revisit an Alice in Chains album, I often go toward facelift. <laughs> yeah, I think this speaks to the fundamental difference between you and me, really, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and like, like, what is the 
I mean, I can see a time that I might go and, li- but honestly, like I couldn't remember the last time I listened to this album before I was prepping for this oh, episode right. of the show. Because if I'm going to listen to Alice in Chains, it's 99 times out of 100 going to be facelift. Yeah. Whereas for me, it's this. Yeah. I just. <laughs> because like to, this album, I don't want to say it's a chore to listen to, but it is a dark journey. And especially the sort of suite of songs that are very much um, about heroin. Like, dude, have you have you listened to Tripod to the album that came after this? Now that is a chore to listen to. I mean, it's a fine album, but that is that is hard to listen to all the way through in one session. Nope, I don't even think I have. Yeah, that, that is yeah. <laughs> it make it makes this sound like facelift, <laughs> but it it kind of gets me thinking. Like I'm listening. I tried to throw this on when I was on the treadmill the other day, and I'm like, nope. It's not doing it for me here. Yeah, this is um, not workout music. <laughs> but then, like yesterday, I was, I, I was, I gave it a couple listens where I was just kind of putting notes together for the episode and just kind of just kind of immersing myself in the album. And uh, the the greatness of the album comes through, even though the feelings that it evokes in me are not a reason why I usually. Right. You know, uh, pick up an album and listen, because as we've talked about time and time and time again, like I'm not a song skipper. I'm a put the album on and listen to it all the way through. And this one is a dark journey. And I feel like a bit of a mixed bag. So the overall vibe to me, I I just like I feel like there's two albums here. And that's interesting because uh, both Staley and Cantrell, like, you know, at the time and in retrospect, sort of talked about how this is almost like two concept albums, you know, two mini concept it's albums. It's like two EPs, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, so that's very interesting. The thing that strikes me, that has always struck me about this album, and not only this album, actually, is how tuneful it is. Like, yes, it's it grinds and it's heavy and it's sad and melancholic and full of tragedy and what have you, but you can sing along to almost every single track on this oh, album. I mean, and, the, some of the melodies and the harmonies are absolutely incredible. And yeah. there are parts where that, to me, elevates an entire song that otherwise wouldn't have been no, I, anything I agree. standout to me, for it, sure. Entirely, yeah. It's I, there was Maybe this was just sort of backlash at the time, but I remember people dismissing a lot of the grunge stuff as, because it was in reaction to, you know, the very slick party rock of the late 80s, dismissing it as like sort of punkish noise. Um, And even at the time, I was like, that's not true. These are all like really quite tuneful songs. You know, you can sing along to, you know, pick any uh, popular grunge album of the time and you can sing along to most of the tracks on that album. Uh, And this is absolutely one of them. Yeah, this is a very, very catchy album, even though, yes, it is also (laughs) very, very sad. But like I say, that's kind of, you know, hello, old school goth here. That's kind of my thing. Catchy songs that are really sort of sad and depressing is kind of my bag. Yes, that is, that is, (laughs) that should be a (laughs) t-shirt. Catchy songs that are kind of sad and depressing is kind of my bag. But it is also heavy and I just want to mention i just want to reread or read out a youtube comment that i saw somebody i was you know like skipping around looking at stuff what people said about this album and i saw a youtube comment about this album where somebody said i don't listen to alice in chains too often but when i do so do my neighbors (laughs) (laughs) and i was like yes that's absolutely right this is an album designed to be played loud well yes and 
that like the facelift sort of uh, comparison is just going to come up a lot in this, but like, that's how I feel about facelift facelift to me is just such a heavy, aggressive in your face album where I feel like Staley is just raw and um, not even angry, but just aggressive the entire album. And so for me, like there's a very particular vibe that that album has, even though there are songs on that album that go deep and are darker and, um, are not as like, you know, straight ahead metal on it. I just feel like the overall vibe of that album is definitely that. Whereas the overall vibe of this album is like sad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Depressing. But also, yeah, also still loud and heavy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And loudly depressed is, is, uh, (laughs) is how I feel about like, but also like uncomfortable and disturbing in terms of yes. its uh, vulnerability and uh, transparency around drug addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like you're you're getting a window into that that I, you know, is probably on one level good for you to have, but on another level very tough to hear. Yeah. Well, and you know, in some ways, a more open discussion of it than yes you know than most not all you know not to say that there were never people singing about what it was really like to be addicted to heroin before this album because you know of course there were but given its mainstream success its enormous mainstream success uh yeah it's um it does kind of feel like i don't want to say a poster boy because that sounds like it's glamorizing it and the band were at pains and have been at pains since to you know, Cantrell especially, to kind of say, like, this was not in any way meant to glamorize drug use. Um, I think there was, I saw a thing where Staley, a few years after the release of this album, actually was a bit regretful because people would, like, come up to him at gigs and go, hey, man, I'm high, it's awesome, as if he would approve, you know, and he was like, "Uh, no, (laughs) I was not trying to say this is a good thing at all. Oh, shit, what have I done? Um, Well, because, like, this, I I think... It also depends, like, what part of the journey they focus on, because there's definitely parts of, yeah, of uh, exactly. this album where it is kind of glorified, but there's also a more to that story. And it, if you follow it all the way through, then you get to the part where, uh, no, it's not. Where it's not, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing prettier or fun about this anymore. And I read, I don't think I have it pulled up, but I did read, like, Staley's last interview that he did before he died. Awful. Just and he talks about yeah. just how like the the drugs have completely ravaged his body and he's um he needs it like insulin to like a diabetic needs insulin to survive like that's the phase of his life that he's in and he knew that he didn't have much longer and stuff like that it's just a super depressing and awful yeah. um thing just horrible stuff all right well let, let's talk about the individual tracks then so uh, let's kick off with track one album opener then bones.
two minutes and 30 seconds of like straight ahead metal. Yep. And I feel like this to me is very much still in the vein of facelift. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can sort of You know what I mean? It's like you, you come off a facelift and you're like, okay, boom, we're right back into it where this is heavy. This is like, this is just uh, really lean in terms of it's two minutes and 30 seconds long. And so, uh, yeah, it's like paranoid levels of kind of just get in, smack you around the face and get out again. Yeah. And it's like very sort of doomy and, and the, the tone, I mean, they talk about the thickness of the tone, like just the fuzz and the, you know, just the heft of the guitars on this is really, it's a really heavy song. It, it is. It's a, it's a fucking great song to sing as well, by the way, I can tell you, because this was one of the regular songs that, in fact, it was the, the a, a band, I call it a band, we never actually played any gigs or recorded anything, but we used to practice together. The same people that I sat watching that video, the video of Wood with on MTV, uh, we used to play this uh as a practice cover and i i can't speak to the guys doing the guitars but certainly to sing it is a fucking great song to cover lots and lots of fun um but that i imagine it probably is fun to play on guitar as well because that riff what a great riff with that that semitone chord progression it is yeah. it's, it's so simple but it is so effective and yeah just heavy the whole thing it slams you around the face like twice because you've got the opening note with Staley, you know, shouting uh, and the drums and guitar all come in at once and you've got the big crunchy riff and you think, oh, you know, this is, yeah, this is going to be heavy. And then it stops for a quarter of a bar and then crashes in again with the first verse. Again, right. with everything, vocals, drums, guitar, the lot. So twice it kind of gets you like that. And I love that part of the songwriting that is really just... Yeah, just really hammers home. Oh, this is this is going to whack you about the head. And the drums do hit extremely hard here. To go yes. back to like how they got the drum sound for this album, and um, yeah, that that little the little screams that he does to begin the song apparently was something that he kind of did spur of the moment, like when they went to record oh, the right. song. So the song was already written, and he he said to uh, the producer, you know, I kind of hear this little vocal thing I want to do in the beginning of the song. And he, so he added that to the time of the, the sort of riff. Yeah. The first, and it just seemed like it fit perfectly, but yeah, that, uh, I think that vocal punch just really immediately draws you into, you know, well, especially as the fourth one is literally a scream. (laughs) He's going like, (laughs) you know, he does that a lot in the terms of like, uh, kind of carrying out and elongating yes. the final, whether it's word of a, you know, of a, of well, a lyric or whatever it is, like, or the end of a chorus or the, it like almost became a stereotype, didn't it? You know, if you're going to back, certainly back then, if you were going to parody grunge songs, part of it would be doing those kind of like, I, 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 I style yeah. vocals that Staley basically popularized. And then, but also like that as a contrast to like when they have uh, Cantrell, almost it's it's not spoken word, but just singing in a very soft, much cleaner, yeah, cleaner way. And they layer those two things together. It's just like the harmonies between their vocals are really nice. Like considering that you know they're just two guys, um, you know they have a, a lovely, yeah, a lovely harmony when they get overlaid together, which happens a lot. Yeah, this album, which to I, me is like the signature sound of this band. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In a way that like no one else can even come close to. Also, by the way, guitar solo. 
Like, and a good one. And a good like, one. Not super shreddy, but fits yeah. the vibe of the song. Yep. It's so fuzzy, too. Like, the tone of yeah. the guitar is just so... Um, it's but, so good. And, it like, this is... There, I mean, not, there are a lot of guitar solos on this album. This is another thing that gets me, like, the, the sort of misremembering that people have of this period. Like, oh, you know, the grunge bands were all against guitar solos. Like, you know, Jerry Cantrell and Kim Thale. Like right. we're we're in these bands. They they were not against guitar solos. What are you mad? Are you misremembering? No, and I mean, <laughs> sure. If you compare the guitar solos to some of the thrash, you know, and and hair bands that were out there, where they go on for twice as long and they're you know super shreddy and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, when you look at the roots that Jerry Cantrell came from, of course he's going to play guitar solos. Yeah, you know, like of and course good he is. Ones. And yeah. and yeah, ones that again for. A two minute and thirty second song, like definitely does not overstay its welcome in this very tight song. Yeah. Um. Just before we move on, I want to quickly. I mean, this song famously, it's in seven eight. Uh, has you know a sort of weird time signature. I mean, it's not that weird seven eight, but you know, uh, it's not what people are expecting from your average pop song. And you see that throughout the album and Alice in Chains discography as a whole. Um, it's one of the things that marked them and Soundgarden, I think, out from a lot of the other bands was that they both play fucked around with time signatures a lot. Yeah. And I found, I mean, this might've been on Wikipedia or something. I don't know, but I found a quote from Cantrell, um, an interview he did with Guitar World where he says, I, he was asked about that and he says, I really don't know where it comes from. It just comes naturally to me. He says, I could sit down and figure it out, but what's the use? Off-time stuff is just more exciting. It takes people by surprise when you shift gears like that before they even know what the hell hit them. It's also effective when you slow something down and then slam them into the dash, and a lot of Alice stuff is written that way. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, but, it, but it is kind of a signature of theirs. Like Almost every Alice in Chains song has got some weird time signature. Not all, but almost all. Some weird time signature thing going on. Another couple tidbits on that song from the Rip Magazine interview that uh, Cantrell did. He said, Them Bones is pretty cut and dried. It's a little sarcastic, but it's pretty much about dealing with the mortality and with dealing with your mortality in yeah. life. Everybody's going to die someday. Instead of being afraid of it, that's the way it is. So enjoy the time that you've got. Live as much as you can. Have as much fun as possible. Face your fear and live. But he also went on to say, Death freaks me out. I think it freaks a lot of people out. It's the end of life, depending on your views. It's a pretty scary thing. Them Bones is trying to put that thought to rest use what you have left and use it well yep couldn't say that any better so yeah a real you know we talk all the time about the importance of opening tracks on an album and this really i mean it's hard to say that it sets the tone because it's one of the heaviest tracks on the album in terms of sort of you know a rocking propulsive riff and a lot of the tracks aren't like that but it absolutely sets you up for something that is going to be heavy and weird and uh, but also tuneful yes i would in some ways i think it sets a false expectation but to the things that you mentioned you know tuneful yeah. and soulful like that that it definitely does well th- th- i mean the next track absolutely keeps in the same in a similar kind of vein you know more more similar than some of the other tracks to come and that's track two damn that river
you're absolutely right. I still, I'm one of my notes was this still feels like facelift in a good way. Like it, it, it continues that one, two punch of, and this song is three minutes and 10 seconds long. So again, not an another overly long one, song, yeah. uh, another big riff, another heavy song. Um, I think still kind of setting a, making a promise in these first two songs that is not consistently kept for the rest of the album, because these first two songs are very much, um, heavy another great solo here by Cantrell um there's a part when he's playing the solo where they like add another layer of the riff on top of it and it sounds even heavier it's like another yeah. <laughs> another you know a layer uh, another track of the riff on top of it which is really good um and this song is about a fight that he had with Sean Yes. He said, it's about a fight Sean and I had three or four years ago, a stupid, dumb fight. We got really pissed off, and you can't hold back emotions. Sometimes you have to blow off steam, and we did. There's a story about, like, Sean breaking a table over his head or something like that. But when I listen to the lyrics of it, like, I feel like it is about either letting things build up until they explode, right? And then you can't, you can't damn that river. Once, once it comes out, it's coming out. Um, and also, like, saying things that maybe you can't take back. Right, right. Yeah, I always took it to be, even before I read anything about the whole, you know, them having a fight and stuff, uh, I, I just always took this song to be about uncontrolled anger and violence. Yep. Um, so even without knowing that, yeah, it definitely comes across in the lyrics. And you're right, it's another really, it's amazing riff. Such a good riff, this. Um, and the verse riff is pretty awesome as well, actually, you know, not, not just the chorus riff. Another strange time signature. Uh, yeah, another good solo. Although, actually, the riff underneath the solo, to me, is more interesting than the solo itself. Like, the solo on this one, I don't think is as good as them bones, but the riff underneath it is really catchy. I really like that. Um, and, yeah, that's... I don't have a lot to say about this song other than, like, it's great. <laughs> it's it's heavy. It's catchy. I love the guitars. Um and that's pretty much it. There isn't a lot to analyze, if you like, in this no. song. It is, you know, the lyrics are about what you think they're about. And it's a great, straightforward, heavy guitar riff. And it's really and good. And I think that, yeah, and I think that speaks to, like, why, in many ways, this album is a standout for you for what the deeper songs bring, as opposed to maybe just the straightforward. Whereas, like, for me, looking for a kind of a continuation of facelift, those first two songs for me are like, oh, good. We're, we're, we're right back in the groove of, you know, what I kind of thought Alice in Chains to be, so you know? Maybe, but also, like, I was, I was I'm not doing it. I was going to do a bit <laughs> on this album where, like, every track that came along, I was going to say, yeah, this is my favorite. Like, and I was going to do that on every single track. <laughs> this is my favorite track on the album because it kind of is. I cannot pick a favorite on this album. I could every song I listen to, I go, yeah, oh yeah, that's the best track on the album. And then you play me another one and go, oh no, that's the best track on the album. No, and, I love that, and so though. on and so on. But that includes these two, even though they, yes, they are. These two tracks are much more sort of straight ahead, rocky metal tracks than the rest of the album. But I still love them. You know, they're not. That does not diminish them in any way. Just because I also love the rest of the album, perhaps more than you do, that doesn't diminish how much I love these two tracks as well. They are fucking great tracks, and I will listen to them any day of the week you like, um, and and over and over again. Because as rocky metal tracks go, they are superb. Agreed. All right, track three: Rain When I Die. 
big contrast from the first two songs. Oh, right? but so good. But so it good. Is, uh, yeah, lots of whammy bar. Like, uh, lots of wah and whammy bar in oh, this. Oh, the squawk box. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Loads of it. And this uh, is the second longest song on the album as well, by the way. And the vocals kind of come in like a siren with with just the way they're kind of circular. Yeah. You know, those whales in the background. I think there, there's a lot of that. Um, this sound has a this song has a real groove to it. Yes, yes, it um, is very groovy. That just wow, wow, wow! It's really got, which to me doesn't feel like quote unquote grungy at all. It feels very <laughs> um, groovy. You know what I mean? The um, bass line here is really great as well, which really I think, good, which lends to that groovy feel. I think because the bass line drives a lot of this song. In fact, the bass. You know, it's a shame that Mike Starr obviously had his his problems and his personal demons and what have you, uh, you know, and they got rid of him. And obviously not, you know, not that long ago now, he uh, died of, was it uh, accidental overdose, I think? Um, yes, it was. I pulled up the snippet for that. It is um, March 8th, 2011, found dead at his home. Yeah. Um, Later reports indicated his death may have been linked to two different types of antidepressants prescribed to him by a doctor, but at the time, it was uh, believed it was methadone and anxiety medication. Right. But what a great bassist. Like, yeah. he doesn't get, because he was fired from the band and what have you, uh, and because he's, quote-unquote, only the bassist, he doesn't get talked about a lot, but this album is a real... Let's, the bass drives so many of these songs and does really good, interesting things. Uh, underneath Cantrell's guitar across this whole album. Um, and yet it just, people don't seem to really talk about it. I think that's a shame because if you, you know, crank up your EQ or whatever and focus on the bass on this album, you will hear a really, really great bassist playing some amazing bass lines, including on this track. Yeah, it's definitely, as a whole, like more intricate than I think people would give it credit for at first listen. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely fair. Um, do you know, it's uh, th- that, the, the sort of the, what you're talking about, the circular vocals and stuff and the sort of that lazy wailing intro, that's a full minute. That is exactly one minute of building tension in this track before, uh, before it kicks off and we get the, yeah, the sort of, yeah, the wah, the fixed wah guitar line. Um, well, and this is maybe the second longest song on the album. It, it it's, is, yeah. It's, uh, Only six... Rooster is longer. Yeah. Right. Uh, and um, even then, Rooster is only longer by, I think, about 15 seconds, seconds or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... What a chorus as well on this track. Like, what a fantastic chorus. You've got Staley's vocals are, you know, full of angst. The guitar line underneath it is really good and interesting. It does a sort of unexpected rise at the end of the final line, which is really nice. And then the way that the the final word, you know, when he sings, oh, when I die, and the final word die is actually sung over the verse starting again. Um, yep. You know, that, that the squawk box guitar again. It's just, it's so well written, but also brilliantly performed. Um, and I mean, yes, it's, it's kind of almost laughably uh, tragic and almost gothy uh, in a way uh, as a chorus, but it just works so well. And I love it. Yeah, it's a great song. I love the section where they're singing, they're kind of harmonizing. She won't let me hide. She don't want me to cry like that. Yeah. Is really, really good. And uh, this is another song where I feel like you can, the way that Cantrell is like 
singing softer and, and again almost just enough melody that it's not spoken word yeah. but just like under is so that is so good especially like when you're listening to it with headphones and you can really kind of hear how they're playing off one another it's so good yeah um and then it ends with that uh that that the fade that isn't a fade yes uh, what do you th- think about that well there was a bit of a fad for this sort of thing uh, in the 90s, as I recall, there was a few bands that did, yeah, kind of fake fade outs and stuff. And then they'd suddenly bring the song back like this. I don't know. I don't think they were the first to do it around this time. Um, but I just remember it happening a lot. Yeah, I don't mind too much because it, it does then, you know, the song ends properly and it kind of feels like, haha, it was, you know, clearly meant to sound that way. But it is a bit odd. I've never quite. I don't know what the point of it is. Do you know what I mean? It's. Uh, yeah. I don't think it serves a purpose that helps the song. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, as I, say, I don't mind it necessarily, but I'm just kind of like, what's it there for? I don't know. But yeah, great track. Um, I mean, yeah, as I say, obviously the most almost laughably sort of, you know, tragic and angst filled <laughs> track on the album. Uh, but it's just great. It's so well done. Um, yeah, another great one. Even though it is a, a quite a departure from the first two tracks, but I think maybe that long building intro, the instrumental intro to this, almost kind of gives you that separation. You know, it kind of warns you that something um, something different is coming after the first two tracks. It does, and I think that regardless of the subject matter that they're talking about here, like it doesn't fit in the like heroin sweet mold uh, of like super depressing <laughs> like there e- even though we're talking about is it going to rain when i die like i don't find this this song doesn't feel like as much of a downer y- you know what i mean right. as uh as some of the later songs on the album and so i think like vibe wise it just feels like a contrast to the first two but not in a oh we're going in a totally different direction sort of way right. just in like and this is the song where we take it down a little bit and you know, sort of thing. Okay, so let's move on to track four. And this is where the sort of, you know, the the track listings diverge because, and but that's interesting in relation to what you just said, because if the next track was down in a hole, I can see how you might feel like you'd been thrown a curveball. Like, hang on a minute, you know, what happened to those, uh, you know, sort of rocking tracks that I was listening to at the start? Whereas on the original release, it's Sick Man. Uh, which, well, let's, let's play some of that now.
And that obviously is a very different vibe from Down in a Hole. <laughs> very um, different And vibe. very different to Rain When I Die as well. Agreed. So, it, you yep. know, it is much more rocky in flavour. Um, so maybe that's why it never felt quite like such a curveball to me. I don't know. Yeah. And so for this song, Sick Man, for me, I don't, I feel like this is a song that is redeemed by one moment in the middle. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, uh, because like, it is very disorienting. It's very, um, it's got kind of this dreamy sort of, uh, I, I just, I guess dope sick is the best way to kind of talk about it, right? Where there's all of these feelings of like, in some cases, it's sort of almost like this dreamy feel to it. In other ones, it's painful and, and um, you know, frustration sort of thing. There's just a lot of emotions in this stuff. And the way that this song uh, the drums are very heavy, you know, uh, in the beginning, and the riff itself is kind of disorienting, and also just the way that Staley's vocals are delivered in that kind of, um, I don't know, almost like stilted way. Staccato kind of way. Yeah, yeah. and then it's like, Stigman, you know, sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't, to me, that's not pleasing. Like, in not pleasing just in like, a, I really like the song sort of way, but almost like not I don't enjoy listening to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't, it doesn't give me a lot to hold on to until it gets to that beautiful part in the middle of the song where there's like this acoustic descent yeah, and the absolute despair. But like, it, it's like the Galadriel stuff. It's like the terrible and beautiful at the same time of like, what a beautiful haunting harmony, but also like completely complete, like despair. Um, that moment is so good that it elevates the entire song for me. It it does amuse me that the middle eight is the most tuneful and melodic thing in the entire song. Yeah, I've got that in my notes. That it's uh, it, I've always found that. I mean, I assume it obviously it's deliberate, you know. And I, yeah, it's uh, I've always just found it quite almost like a musical joke. Uh, that in the middle of this, probably the least tuneful and the most difficult to listen to song on the album musically yeah you've got this absolutely beautiful melodic uh middle eight it's yeah it's quite a contrast um, and it like cuts you to the core it's just so like powerful yeah so emotionally I, I like i do like this song because it is weird and odd uh and yeah it is a bit difficult but i'm okay with that i like how it effectively restarts as well after every chorus um, yep. I mean, all, all songs do that in a sense, but this one really feels like it because the chorus and the verse are so different because the verse is that and then the the chorus are these kind of almost dreamy, psychedelia-influenced yep. uh, bits, and then it just kind of fades out, and then, oh, here we go again. <laughs> it's, it's just so odd. It's such a weird song. Um well, and as but a song about addiction and and drugs, like it, it yeah, that yeah. Uh, disorienting nature of it feels very true to what the song is about. Very appropriate, um, yeah. Even if it's not, which again, I feel like part of what they're saying is like, yeah, a lot of this isn't pleasant to, you know, experience. You know, like that. That to me is part of the vulnerability. I think in some ways that they're showing on this is that it it is disorienting, right? It is um, this Jekyll and Hyde sort of. Yeah. thing and they capture that very well whether or not it makes a 
a good song. fun song to listen to, I think is a different story. But I think it's important in the sense that they're exploring something here and they're capturing the thing that they're exploring. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's very fair. Um, One of the things we haven't talked a lot about to this point, but I feel like could be mentioned on pretty much every song on this album is the lyrics. Like they're great. Yeah. There, there is some absolute poetry going on in it. Like if you, you could, I think the lyrics to this album can stand alone without the music. That's how good the lyrics are in so much of this album. But like just a line in sick man, like I can feel the wheel, but I can't steer. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Oh, like, there, are, there are. I've picked a few out on later tracks. Brutal is that's a very good way of putting it, actually, because there are some that really kind of cut to the quick. Oh, just like, and yeah. So even like even in a situation like this, where maybe the song as a whole doesn't grab me, like just reading through the lyrics on it, it's you could just put a book out of the lyrics to the to these songs. I feel like, and it could stand on its own. I would agree one hundred percent. And I mean, you want to talk about lyrics? The next track, track five, is Rooster. Which Jerry Cantrell wrote about his father, who was a Vietnam vet. Serving in Vietnam, yeah. Who had a nickname of the rooster. And um, one of the quotes that he said in an interview about it, well, I think with Classic Rock Magazine, um, he said, I certainly had resentments, as any young person does in a situation where a parent isn't around or a family is split. Um, but on Rooster, I was trying to think of his side of it, what he might have gone through. Yeah. This is, again, the longest song on the album, as we've mentioned. Um, I mean, it is, what can you say? It is sad. It is beautiful. It is haunting. It's brilliantly played. Um, Absolutely. But but the sadness shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, we've said that a few times about this album, but this song especially, given that it is about sort of war experiences, more than anything else, the emotion that comes over from this is just sadness. Just like, what a waste, you know, what a pointless waste of young men. Um, it's, it's really well done. And again, you're talking about the lyrics, the lyrics in this are fantastic. Um, there's a story Cantrell told of he, he and his father, you know, as has been mentioned, weren't that close. Um, uh, and his father didn't really, you know, sort of come to watch the band much, but he apparently did come to watch them once, uh, when they played this song and, you know, seemed to sort of, well, Cantrell anyway says that he 
kind of quietly acknowledged it in a very manly, not showing any emotion way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in a way that Cantrell kind of took to mean, yeah, okay, he got it. You know, he, he sees where I'm coming from, which is just nice. Um, musically, again, bassline. It is amazing how much of this song is the bassline rather than the guitar. The guitar is, oh, it's important, but it's not doing anything sort of, uh, it's almost like it, the, the guitar is just kind of keeping time. Yeah. Uh, and the bass line is what's actually providing most of the uh, music and melody in this song, along with the lyrics, obviously, or the vocals, I should say. Which I think just underscores the emotional nature of the song. And then again, like lyrically, got my pills against mosquito death, my buddy's breathing his dying breath. Oh God, please won't you help me make it through. Yeah. Like just the absolute depths of you know, despair and, and hopelessness, you know? Um, yeah. Powerful song. I mean, it, the fact that it's like one of their best known singles of, and the subject matter of it is just so heavy. Yeah. Um, is, well, I think that says a lot, doesn't it? You know, their best known songs are man in the box, wood and rooster. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. You know, this is not, <laughs> And they all three of those were popular, mainstream, successful Very songs. much so. Not at all what you'd expect from, you know, the the public. <laughs> I mean, like, ubiquitous radio play. Yeah. Like, everywhere, at least over here on, on the radio. Like, you couldn't... This song was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's The chorus in this is just so good as well. Like, the counter-harmony that they've got. Well, the, harmon- yes, the, har- the harmony in general. But then on the second line, when they sing Rooster... Staley stays on the note while Cantrell goes down a note. And, and it, it works so well. It's a tiny little thing, but it just, it elevates that whole chorus. Uh, you know, just before, obviously, Staley kind of shouts his lungs out singing, he ain't gonna die, which is also brilliant. It's just, yeah, those little, lovely, subtle little touches. And I'm just kind of thinking about this right now, but also giving, you know, some of the roots that this band has, like one of the staples I feel like of the, you know, hair metal era was the idea of like other members of the band being very capable background singers yeah, that were very capable of harmonies and, and things like that. And to me, like the fact that the two of them are both such good singers is just really allows them to do things that other bands couldn't do. And in ways, and the way that they that they play off of one another, and they um, have these sort of different approaches in different songs, is really again, it's just a differentiator for them yeah. in a way that other bands can't replicate. Yeah, absolutely true. Track six, then, uh, Junkhead.
and this is the start of the the a five song sequence basically yeah about heroin about addiction and being a junkie uh this from this through to angry chair yeah um yeah this is the sort of the the junkie suite if you like and Um, he said in in that rip interview he said those songs are put in sequence on the second side five songs from junkhead to angry chair for a reason because it tells a story it starts out with a really young, naive attitude with Junkhead, like drugs are great, sex is great, rock and roll, yeah. And then as it progresses, there's a bit of growing up and a bit of realization of what it's about and, and that all that fun stuff kind of ain't what it's about. He says, I've been using this phrase a lot, but it makes a lot of sense. It's really easy to die. It's really hard to live. It takes a lot of guts to live. It doesn't take a lot of guts to die. Yeah, I, um, I, I noted that quote as well. I love that line. And uh, he was asked, were those songs written in that order? He says, no, not one after the other. They just kind of fell together. They were basically all uh, all basically written by Lane. Yeah, uh, which I think you can tell. Well, the last two songs in the suite were literally written by Staley. Like, he wrote the music as well the as guitar, the yeah. lyrics. Yeah, and even performed guitar yeah. uh, on those last two. But yeah, this one, the the drama of those opening chords, like... Uh, Again, you know, not kind of, but a lot of people thought that grunge wanted to sort of kill, uh, you know, the, the, the rock that had come before it. The theatrical. Right. right. Yeah. 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 The dramatic nature of it. But you listen to this, like there is such theater and drama in the opening to this song that I, I just don't believe that. I cannot buy that. Um, more great bass work in this song as well. And I think everybody in this track is firing on all cylinders like the drums work really hard but without overpowering it um Cantrell somehow makes one guitar sound like four uh, <laughs> and i assume that's all the layering and overdub oh, yes, talked about yep. before and again another great chorus like really great harmonizing between staley and Cantrell in this chorus yeah i mean this this is kind of the tough part of the album for me uh, th- this whole like suite of songs for me angry chair is really the only one that really sticks with me as far as songs that jump out at me and so this is a tough part of the album and that to me is where i feel like especially with the way that the songs were on the you know the version i just listened to but I, i feel like the album is bookended really well but there's that middle part that not when we talk about like the the middle letdown or whatever in a lot of the albums where there's a bunch of the throwaway slump. songs, yeah. that's not what I'm talking about here. For me, it's just tonally and musically, there's a stretch of this album that is just not, it's just a grind for me to get through. Oh, man. No, I, I, I mean, I can see where you're coming from, but no, I, I disagree. Like this, I wouldn't say this is, you know, the sort of, the pinnacle of the album or anything because like right. i said i love every track on this album i really do but that includes these and yeah there's you know in, at times not easy to listen to especially lyrically but they're so good um and like the chorus here the lyrics what's my drug of choice well what have you got okay we've yep. heard we've heard that sort of thing before that's a fairly you know that in itself is not an original sentiment but to follow it with i don't go broke and i do it a lot what yep. the f- that is <laughs> That's just fucking great. Like, holy shit, to follow that up with that, uh, just brilliant. So well written. 
And that fits so much, too, with some of the early interviews that he would do when people were questioning him about his, you know, drug use. And he would talk about how he was getting everything done. Right. He was you a know, functioning like, junkie. He yeah. was a functioning, you know, to the point where he was basically kind of dismissing any concerns that he had a drug problem because he was, you know, just was kind of saying things are blown out of proportion. Like, look at what I'm able to do. And that, again, kind of plays into the early journey as opposed to where things go. Right, exactly. Yeah, as you said before, the start of this suite is starting out good. Hey, you know, drugs are great. Everything's fine. And then by the time you get to angry chair, it's like, oh, shit. Oh, no, nothing. This is this is not good at all. Um, well, I mean, let's move on then from that to Dirt, track seven. Yeah, lyrically, obviously, this is uh, heading towards that sort of, you know, just before the peak and then the descent. But musically, this this is really reminiscent of Sabbath, I think. It's another really like great wah guitar line. Yep. Really sludgy. Very think, doomy. Yeah, this is the track, yeah. I think, that kind of demonstrates why... Uh, well, the whole suite of tracks, but especially this one, is probably why it is influential on Sludge and Stoner Metal, especially. Um, because, yeah, this track really does feel sludgy. And the chorus is so good. Yes. You know. Um, well, the, well, the chorus it, itself feels like a build, which is uh, quite unusual for a chorus. You know, it's. I almost feel like it's a warning, sort of like it's him, like having a conversation with himself, right? Like one who doesn't care is one who shouldn't be. And then the other line of "I tried, to, I've tried to hide myself from what is wrong for me." Yeah, I mean that's like Just we talked about struggle. lines that are a kick in the teeth. You know, that yeah. is, yeah, that resonates, man. Um, it's almost like, the, and again, in the sequence that it falls, it's almost like the part where you realize this is starting to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And you're having that conversation with yourself of like, all right, I got to pump the brakes here. I got to, I got to slow down. I got to, I got to get myself together. Yeah. What, and Staley's vocals are so powerful in this one as well. Not just, I mean, physically, you know, he, he's got a set right. of lungs on him, but emotionally they are, they feel pretty raw, you know? Uh, and, and the power comes across in that. I think it's, you know, um, how can I put it? you it feels like he means it yes yeah and that's i think what makes it powerful even if musically it doesn't you know it all doesn't necessarily hit me in the same way just the the vulnerability and the what feels like transparency yeah 
Yeah, totally. Um, and then it ends in a lovely wash of feedback uh, and, yeah. and the, the squawk box guitar again, which, as I say, feels very uh, doomy and very Sabbathy to me. Um, you could imagine Tony Iommi playing that line, I think. For sure. And then track eight, Godsmack. like a primacy type of opening to the song i feel like oh and his vocal delivery on the song is very uh unnerving like just kind of like um yeah it just gave me a primus vibe for part of it for sure yeah yeah and primus were already around by this time so yeah i could i could see that um yeah the the band godsmack incidentally insist that they are not named after this song bullshit bullshit yeah 100 <laughs> like, percent. no fucking way <laughs> um yeah it's it's another great chugging riff i mean it's a change of pace actually this is closer in some ways to those tracks at the start of the album yes uh, yep. you know it is much faster it's a very short song um i think it's the shortest song on in this like five track suite um but also staley's vocals are really weird on this track yes like what an odd choice to open. You've got each line opens with a really sort of raspy shout, but only for one syllable, even in a multi-syllable word, only one syllable, and then does this really over-the-top vibrato, uh, you know, almost like sort of comedy vibrato on it's the like rest cartoonish. of the line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so odd. Um, Which, again, just feels like if we're in this theme of the whole, like, it's just like erratic behavior, right? Yeah. You know, sort of feel. Right. It feels like it it sounds like a madman is singing it. Yes. Which is kind of appropriate given, again, the subject matter. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, there's not a lot else to say. A lot of these songs in this this sort of junky suite are not that complex uh, in terms of songwriting or music, but they are so, as you said, so honest and so transparent Well, that that's where a lot of their power comes from, I think. And just like the lines, what in God's name have you done? Stick your arm for some real fun. Yeah. <laughs> so your sickness weighs a ton, and God's name is smack for some. Yeah. Just like in four lines, we've gone from, this is something, like th- like someone outside of it saying, what did you do to yourself? But like even in three lines, like it starts out as fun, and now you are completely beholden to this thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, like absolutely. that's that's a th- there's a lot there. Well, this is the start of the descent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which can so uh, continues with uh, track nine. Hate to feel. And this is the one that, um, in some versions, the intro to this is uh, Iron Gland with right. Tom Araya's, uh guest vocals on this particular track. But it's only 43 seconds long and, and I think actually works better as an intro as opposed to like a standalone. Yeah, it's, as I say, on the original release, it wasn't a separate track. Um, it's just, yeah, it's an intro effectively or a sort of interlude, if you like, between tracks. I always just took it as being uh, and sort of indicating the descent into madness from drugs. Uh, well, and also there's a note that says uh, Cantrell concocted the song out of a riff he played that bothered the rest of the band. Yeah, he, he used to play it re- on the album as a promise that he'd never play it again. Exactly. Yeah, he played it in rehearsals apparently to wind up the other band members because obviously it's a horrible, horrible atonal yeah. riff. So yeah, it was just kind of getting it out of his system on the album. But it does work if you take it as I say 100%. as that kind of like descent into madness thing. Maybe that's maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it, that's how I always interpreted it when it wasn't a separate track and also before i knew that tom aria was the guy doing the vocals like what the fuck right (laughs) but anyway as you say it's only 45 seconds long hate to feel itself this is one of the first of one of two tracks this and the next track were both written entirely by staley including the guitar part um which is really interesting to me because the opening of this is so doomy yeah. Like it is so that long tremolo filled, like that's really kind of, you know, archetypal doom metal stuff. Um, I would never have guessed. If I didn't know, I would have never have guessed that that was him writing those guitar parts. I would have just, because it feels so much like the rest of the, of a piece with the rest of the album to me. Um, there was a quote from uh, Cantrell in the liner notes of the 1999 Music Bank collection where he says he has a lot of pride in seeing Lane grow as a guitarist and songwriter create to, to create something so heavy. He says he's always yeah. been so honest in his songs, like all of us. We don't bullshit in our music. We always pushed, it, pushed each other to say it as it needed to be said. Um, there was another quote I saw from him where he said that apparently Staley was always really encouraging and supportive of Cantrell doing vocals. 
because Cantrell yeah. was a bit kind of self-conscious about singing. When you've got a singer like Lane Staley, you know, <laughs> you're going to feel a bit inadequate. And apparently Staley was always really encouraging and supportive of him. So he returned that being encouraging and supportive of Staley when he was writing music and playing guitar. Well, and I remember reading that Staley's father had been out of the picture for a long time. And when he came back in, they ended up uh, doing drugs together. And oh, wow. uh, there's a line in here where it says, all this time I swore I'd never be like my old man. What the hey, it's time to face exactly what I am. And just that sort of revelation, right? And and um, acceptance, I mean, you know. I didn't know that background to that line but that line has always stuck with me that is an absolutely killer line and it is one of the standouts uh on the whole album i think all this time i swore i'd never be like my old man that's that's pretty much every guy who's ever lived <laughs> right? dude tell me about it <laughs> that's such a universal male feeling like holy shit um there's another one as well where is it oh just it comes just before that actually the line used to be curious now the shit sustenance. Oh, dude. That's, that's a good brutal, line, man. <laughs> brutal. Um, yeah. But yeah, like even outside of the subject matter of the, you know, this suite of songs, that statement about, you know, turning into your father is just hits home for everyone. Uh, for, uh, yeah. Like I say, for every, every male on the planet, I think. Yeah. Um, and what's amazing is it takes so long to realize that, right, in your yes. lifetime of like that. But you start to see it. Like, I just know now at my age, I, I see it. I see the good and the bad. Um, and like my own growth journey and looking back at his growth journey, like it's just wild. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. I cannot remember who said it now, but there's a line. Somebody said, uh, I, I always found it strange how the older I get, the smarter my father gets or yeah. something like that. Yeah. It's, right. I can't remember the exact quote, but you get, you get the sentiment. It's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, um, let's move on to track 10, which you've already mentioned earlier. Angry chair. Yeah, I mean, this one, a, a very dark and doomy too, I think. Um, but, and, and part of it is because this was a song that was on the radio all the time. It was a single, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so it did get drilled into me. Um, but definitely, like, of that suite of songs is the one that I gravitate towards the most. Um, 
but just like the bam 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 wow like that the, just the way that this song is put together i think it has really heavy elements really um dark elements to it um and it, it feels more like it feels like it could be on facelift you know what i mean it feels like it it does fit um it's not so much of a contrast to what came before you know mm. Yeah, I, it, it is a great track. Uh, it, as we've said, it's the end of that sort of five-song suite. Great opening with those drums. Uh, just no nonsense, four on the floor. No funny time signatures this time. Uh, and then that brilliant and sort of ominous, simple guitar melody, uh, which again, you know, entirely written by Staley. Holy shit, what a great songwriter. So great. Um, and like the mournful harmony. Yes. You know what I mean? Like that, which I think is such an Alice in Chains like signature now, well, kind of looking back on the whole band. Well, you know, and, it's and just. And a monotone. In the verse, yeah. he's singing like a monotone. There's no melody there at all, which is kind of appropriate to the subject matter, I suppose, um, especially after Hate to Feel. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the chord changes in the chorus. Again, Staley wrote this, I haven't said, not the guitarist, the vocalist wrote this. And the chord changes in the chorus are so good. They floor me every time. They're so unexpected, but, but they just kind of feel right. Even, even though they are unusual and unexpected, they feel so right. And yeah. they fit the song so well. Um, and yeah, especially underneath, again, more great harmonizing uh, when they're singing I Don't Mind, Lost My Mind, and so on. It's uh... And the theme of this one um, seems to be like, going through the process of trying to kick oh yeah heroin yeah so it's the whole like um despair and anger you know like just like just those conflicting emotions like well and and that line like and it feels heavy saw my reflection and cried oh i mean (laughs) so little hope that i died yeah (laughs) it's like Um, but even before that like loneliness is not a phase field of pain is where i graze yeah uh, it's uh again just such great serenity is lyrics. far away yeah. like just being in a place where you just can't even imagine getting through it and and feeling different about yourself you know yeah uh, and and what an ending i mean and this is what i meant earlier when we were talking about how the sort of the track listing and stuff like if this album ended here and you could you could end this album here that would be yep. 10 tracks and it would still be a classic. You'd basically have side two would be the concept side. And the thing is, like, if it did end there, I almost think it would be better off for that concept. For the because concept, it would, yes. Yeah, because it would be beginning, middle, and end right. of that, and you could take it for what it is. Right. But, but, it, obviously, it doesn't. Uh, you know, there are still two tracks to go. So, yeah, you could end the album there, and it would still be brilliant. But instead, we get track 11, which is as I say, on the original pressing, at least, down in a hole.
down in a hole, which again was what was it, track four on my on, on the on version the that pressing, I listened to. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is one of the best songs that Alice in Chains ever wrote. It, it is great, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's beautiful, it's haunting, but also like every instrument and the vocals all are just sublime on this. Like it all comes together musically and this is a song like if people were being dismissive about the level of complexity and grunge like right or their ability to play their instruments like yeah yeah, like this song just like it all comes together um the acoustic is absolutely beautiful and then like the mournful electric guitar over the top of it the guitar line itself is great, but the bass and the drums, and then of course the vocals, like it's all, it just all fits together. And I actually like it later on in the album, right? Because it's almost a reminder of like when every facet of this group comes together, like just the robustness of what they can create, you know? Yeah. Well, it's also, even though this is still a very sad song, <laughs> or a sad-sounding song, uh, it is, it, it's light relief, almost, compared to the tracks that come before. Um, so I actually, again, and this is just because this is how I listened to it for years and years and years, but to me it's always felt like it's a bit of a a, a way out from the darkness of those the last five tracks. Uh, it, it's part of the getting out of that feeling towards wood, yeah. which is, you know, much, as we've said, you know, musically a much lighter song. Um, I mean, you can argue that this is a kind of a traditional rock ballad. You know, you've got light verses, a heavy chorus, um, but the verses, even though they're light musically, they're so doomy and gloomy <laughs> that it doesn't sound like most ballads that you would hear, you know? Well, and it's also like a return to Cantrell's story. Like yes, we've taken yes. this journey with with Staley, and in this one, and this is from the box set that you mentioned earlier in the liner notes, Jerry Cantrell dedicated the song to Courtney Clark, his longtime love, and he wrote, "In the reality of my life, the path that I've chosen, and in a weird way, it kind of foretold where we are right now. Um, it's hard for us to both understand that this life is not conducive to much success with long term relationships." Yeah, and so just to have him like sharing his story, it's not as, I think it's less dark and also more relatable at the same time, the story that yes. he's telling in this song. So it does feel like a bit of a weight has been lifted because like now we're kind of back to something that if you haven't dealt with addiction, then you're, this is something that's more easy to grasp onto. Yeah, for sure. Um, while still being heavy and still being, you know, sad in many ways, um, it just feels more relatable. And also that line, I have been guilty of kicking myself in the teeth. Oof. Right? Like, and again, that's another line that the older you get, the truer it becomes, right? Yeah. right? Like you just have more uh, evidence to back that statement up. I mean, honestly, even in, even in my 20s when I was listening to this, that was still relatable even then. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, even more so as you get older, like, oh, For sure. wow. And again, this is, a, again, a great song. They could end the album here. And it would still be a classic. Imagine if this was the last song. Um, you'd, st- you know, everybody would still go, "Yeah, what a great album." But in they don't. There is another, uh, and that is track twelve, the real last track, which is Wood.
Another great, I mean, Down in a Hole in Wood as the two ending tracks on this album are just like a, it completely solidifies this. It It's so good. Yeah. That fantastic bass intro. So good. Uh, the heavy drums, but the light touch on the guitar. And, and then that chorus, that huge, huge chorus. Just, again, this is another one. What more can you say about it? It's such a famous, well-known song. Every body has heard it everybody's got an opinion about it i'm sure and it was such a success um yeah just so good well and having been on the single soundtrack right i mean it just was such a good yeah. prep for this album and and you know springboard into this album that it was it just feels like a perfect fit here for what? the end of it and and being a tribute to a friend right and yes um, and the message that I take from it, and I haven't read uh, the liner notes or whatever of, of what the song is, but, you know, being dedicated to a friend, it almost is in some ways feels like in the voice of the friend, right? Of Andrew. Yes. And saying, you know, so I made a big mistake. Try to see it once my way. Like, don't judge me too harshly for this mistake that I've made, Yeah, you know, um, and the choices that I've made. And I think like, as a band that has also, you know, everyone in that band has been through something, if not heroin addiction, then kind of all do. Like, I feel like they get that, yeah. you know, that idea of like not, not writing someone off or not, not letting their memory be tarnished by the bad choice that they made. Right. I, I always took this song, yes, to be written from Andrew Wood's perspective. I mean, the last line is, if I would. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think that's right. obviously, yes, it's kind of spelt differently in the lyrics, but it's pr- right, but, it's but also pretty obviously a play on words. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, as you say, as a tribute to a friend, it's, it's really good. Um, and it has that beautiful, like I said, that right at the start, as I said, I mentioned that fantastic chord change at the end. Uh <laughs> That is just so good and just elevates the heart. It would be a good song anyway because that of that huge chorus, but that coda at the end with the odd chords and Staley's voice going down is just yeah again just lifts it a, a notch above uh, you know equivalent songs. I totally agree, and I feel it much like down in a hole. Like it's a song if you wanted to show the depth of what Alice and Change is capable of, right? And, yeah. and just like musically, of like where everything comes together—the bass and the drums and the guitar—and how they all complement one another, and then the vocals and the way that they are uniquely able to, you know, have these harmonies and things like that. It, this is a good like. This is why you should listen to Alice and Chains' song, right? Yeah, well, and especially as the verses in this are literally sung by Jerry Cantrell. These verses are, you know, uh, Staley's backing him up, but the main right. voice you hear on the actual verses of this song is Cantrell, not Staley. Um, right. And what I'm, but what I'm saying is, like, these last two songs, you could cut them out and be like... Oh, I see what you're saying. Anyone yeah, yeah. who's being kind of dismissive of the grunge, or like doesn't understand the depth of what Alice in Change is capable of, like, you could give them these two songs and be like dig into these yeah for sure <laughs> there's a lot to there's a lot to dig into here 
Oh, and yeah. And we have. I mean, there's a lot to dig into in the whole album, and I'm sure we could carry on talking about it for hours more. Um, but yeah, what a great album. For me, and as I say, I, I realise that for some people, like yourself, Facelift is going to be, uh, you know, their preferred album. But for me, this is just, this is a pinnacle. This album is an absolute flawless classic for me. 10 out of 10. Like, their best album. Yeah, and what's interesting is, like, I... I don't want to say that I liked this album. I respect this album more, having gone through this exercise with it, but also enjoy it less. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, Because I, I remember, like, if you asked me, like, what was this album? Like, I told you, we were listening to it in the summer, almost a year after it came out. So, like, at the time, it felt like we were listening to this album all the time. Yeah. So, in my head, like, revisiting, it was like, of course, this is, album is absolutely amazing. And, and like, it was you know, just, um, I was expecting to come out of it feeling like this was neck and neck with facelift for me. Right. And instead going through, this was like, I can completely understand why this is the album that so many people point to because it is such a showcase for the different layers of Alice in Chains. At the same time, it reaffirmed that facelift is the album of their discography that I will always gravitate to the most. Sure. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. I mean, I, like I, said, I disagree with it. <laughs> yeah, but I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, this is not, you know, always the easiest album to listen to, especially in that junky suite of songs. But, uh, but for me, that doesn't that that's not a minus point. Uh, you know, no, and like people call it their magnum opus, right? And I think if to, for it to be referred to as that, like it has to be deeper than what Facelift offers, right? Like it has to be something more. And this album is something more. It is, yeah. It is, you said, it's it's deep, you know, in every sense of the word, uh, musically, lyrically, thematically. Um, yeah, like, it, like I said, for me, it's a masterpiece. I just absolutely love it. Yeah, definitely uh, happy that we got to revisit it at a time where it's 30th anniversary, which is horrifying to think about um, <laughs> on so just? many different <laughs> levels. Like it, it really is, especially when you're like, hey, it came 20 years after Black Sabbath, and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really does blow my mind that this is 30 years old. It is crazy, isn't it? And it still sounds so good. Yeah. Because like you, for all of this stuff, right, you close your eyes and this is 10 years ago. Oh yeah, you yeah, know what I mean. Yeah. If someone's like, "Oh, I, yeah. you know," if just like off of your subconscious mind of like, "Oh, well, how long ago did you know this album come out?" Ah, ten years ago. <laughs> I'd, I'd no, probably say twenty, thirty, just, just because of the whole business of uh, Staley dying. But yeah, thirty years is just mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, getting old, man. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Uh, but I think we survived this album without getting too depressed. Yeah, I'd like, say so. I'd coming say so. out the other end, but yeah. and, and definitely. Um, glad that we could go and, and revisit it and one of those um bands certainly that people have been waiting for the episode that we were going to dive into this band so indeed and well before we get on to the homework <laughs> uh i will remind everyone i'll say to everybody out there thank you for listening remember if you enjoy the show spread the word tell your friends rate us on itunes google play whatever wherever you listen to your podcasts uh and you can support us directly by going to patreon.com slash thrash it out to uh make a pledge and take part in the listener poll for this volume which like i said we'll be opening in a couple of weeks you must be a patron uh in order to take part 
If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter, and you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashitout and talk about this episode and recommend music to others and just join in the chat. But now, uh, yes, talking about... So, uh, the next episode, the homework for next episode is very different to this, but also a band that I feel probably a lot of people are thinking, why haven't they covered this band yet? Uh, And I even had to go back and forth between albums. (laughs) It was one of those where I was like, do we do the classic or do we do the latest, you know, similar to what we did with Trivium. Right. And I really vacillated back and forth, but I've decided ultimately we're going to do the classic. So almost a decade just over nine years after uh, Alice in Chains released Dirt, uh, came this album in 2001 by a, um, a little-known German band called Rammstein. Oh, boy. And the album is Mutter. Wow. And that is what we are going to do for the next uh, uh, episode. Because, yeah, I feel, I was looking at it, I was going like, we haven't done Rammstein, we really should do Rammstein. Um, and I know that that is probably going to be a divisive choice. Like, that's the other thing. I, I know that there are going to be some of our listeners who are like, fuck Rammstein. Uh, and there are going to be others who are like, yes, fuck Rammstein. <laughs> <laughs> well, this show is called The Metal Argument. Indeed, out loud. exactly. So, yeah. of course, yeah. you have to live up to that. And I did not see that coming, but definitely excited to dive into that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's the album, Mutter by Rammstein from 2001. Uh, go and do your homework and we will see you in the next episode. Until then, keep thrashing. Take care, everyone. <laughs>